For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, how easy it would be I imagine, I know in my own heart, and maybe for many of my brothers and sisters here, to look at this passage and say, I got this. No problem. Believing for salvation. God so loved the world. Condemned already before Christ even came into the world, and the judgment is the light came in, but we love darkness rather than light. Lord, let us not think lightly of these heavy, heavy words. And particularly, the latter portion that comes after such great news in verse 16. Lord, help us as we examine your word to have our hearts opened as well. To come spiritually in a moment as we're reading your word, to come out of any of the darknesses of our lives where we might be hiding sin or shame or a reliance on our own accomplishments, our own deeds. Whatever that darkness may be, whatever our temptation may be to think that. To think that faith is not enough. To think that Christ is not enough. Lord, help us as we look at your love, as we consider our need for eternal life and for the light of Christ that brings that life. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're taking the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisee Nicodemus in two weeks here. So we're finishing up this week. And the next week we will continue on, Lord willing, in John chapter 3, where we will find you know, one last reprise from John the Baptist, and then he will disappear from the Gospel of John. But for now, we come to this second section of John 3, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And last week we looked at regeneration, that idea of God giving life to his people because of what Christ has done. By grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. We notice that Nicodemus had a bit of trouble understanding something of a spiritual reality because of his physical limit limitations, right? He asked questions like, how can a man be born when he is old? In Jesus' explanation of being born of the Spirit and of water, he responds, how can these things be? The teacher of Israel struggling to understand 
the truth of salvation, the truth that, as we saw, was not meant to be something foreign to him, but that, that the, in his years of studying God's word, he ought to have realized that as Christ had come and said these things about the new birth, he should have said, yes, this is exactly what God has been leading us up to, a need for a savior, a need for new birth, for dry bones to come back to life, as Ezekiel shows us as well. We're going to continue in talking about regeneration today. As we continue this conversation with Nicodemus, we're kind of functioning as flies on the wall observing this. And before we go into this section here, it's worth noting that there is some discussion scholastically about this section of Scripture. Now, uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, that is a Bible that takes the the spoken words of Jesus in the Gospels and highlights them in red, I imagine your translation does contain um, all of these words in 16 through 21 in red ink, right? But there's a lot of conversation about whether this was something that Jesus actually said in his conversation with Nicodemus or if this was a comment made by John the Apostle afterwards. What's the important reason for bringing that up? Because this is not going to be the cornerstone upon which we understand God's word today. But the reason it's important is because it says something to us about the perfection of God's word as well as the power of God's word. Ultimately, if John is writing under what we say is the inspiration or the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if John's writing and recording the words of Jesus and then stops to record something else some commentary on the conversation that just happened. Does that, make, does that make John's words in 16 through 21, if indeed he was the one who said them and not Jesus, does that make John's words any less impacting than Jesus' himself? It doesn't. It's still the inspired word of God. Isn't that interesting? It's helpful for us because, again, in looking at this this past week, I was going from commentary to commentary. It was like a nice little pattern. Somebody says, Jesus says this. Another guy says, John was the one that said it. Ultimately, what matters is, is God is delivering it to you as his authoritative word. So thankful for that. Thankful for John's explanation or for Jesus' explanation. Whichever it may be, Jesus was involved and he was, of course, the one inspiring this. Well, to talk about regeneration and talk about God's work in us to renew us and give us new life is not theological nitpicking. This is not uh, tribalism, as you see in the church so often, uh, which, of which probably many of us are guilty to some degree of kind of just saying like, hey, I've got my kind of preachers and Bible scholars and theologians and resources that I like to look to, and I, I don't need anything else other than these things. I don't want to explore any other side of Christianity or anything like that. But when we talk about regenerationism, it's not just a matter of saying, hey, we want to hold to a particular theological perspective and put the Bible into it. But when we see regeneration as God's initial work in bringing salvation to a believer, what we actually are finding is, is the basis of understanding that salvation is of the Lord, Right? This is why Jesus, in last week's passage, used this illustration of being born anew, born from above, born again. Because salvation is a God thing. What we'll see in this passage today is the motivation of God in bringing salvation to us in Christ. But we'll also see the response of two different kinds of people to that love, to that 
offer of life, and then most importantly, most distinguishingly rather, um, the effects of the shining light. So that's our title this morning, Love, Life, and Light. So we'll look in the first two verses at God's incredible gift of love, then we'll follow it with our need for eternal life in verses 18 through 19, and then in 20 through 21, we'll see the effects of the shining light. Okay, so three steps that we're moving through here. And again, John, as a thesis for his book, wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we would believe in him and have life in his name. When it comes to understanding salvation a little bit better, the deep kinds of things of Christianity, a lot of the times we look at it and we say, boy, I don't want to become so puffed up in my head that I'm no spiritual good in the world, right? That's, that's kind of like the overwhelming concern, as it were, of, of the church today, is that, you know, if I start learning too much, I'm just going to become an intellectual Christian and have no heart behind that. And so a lot of times, as people grow in their faith and understand deeper theological things, the response they get from many is, man, you know, all you ever want to do is talk about how Jesus saved you. And what all that means and how God did it and all those kinds of things. Shouldn't we go out and love the poor and, and serve people and preach the gospel? Well, yes, we should. And, and understanding the deeper things about Christ and about our salvation in him should not puff up our heads and make us inactive Christians in the world. It should, in fact, prompt us to greater faithfulness, greater ministry and service in the world that needs to hear this good news. So, John wants us to know about salvation theology, but first and foremost, he does want us to believe. So, Augustine said this, Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Did you catch the reversal there? You know, in, in, in the phase that, that so many people go to when they're kind of exploring Christianity and trying to understand it before making a decision to follow Christ or not, oftentimes it is, it, it is an effort of, of trying to take the things that God's word says and wrap my head around them in a way that I can see logic and understanding and a natural order and kind of apply like the scientific method to faith. And most often, we entirely lose faith when we do that. It is, as Augustine says, our responsibility to believe so that we may understand. Not understand so that we may believe. Do you see that in Nicodemus's character here? He, he kind of, it seems as though he, he's left faith behind. He, he's not just, to, you know, again, at the beginning, what did he say? We know you're a teacher sent from God. He didn't say what John wants us to understand a testimony that Jesus is the son of God, not just a teacher, right? So he kind of takes his limited understanding and says, okay, you're a teacher sent from God. I want to try to understand this a little bit better so that I can know whether I should follow you or not. And if you're watching The Chosen at all, this was in season one when they dealt with Nicodemus' story, but they, they kind of framed his story all about whether he was going to choose to follow Christ or not. And ultimately, spoiler alert, he doesn't at least not at this point. We know he shows up later in the Gospel of John, but we'll leave that um, spoil-less for now. But in Jesus' closing section here to Nicodemus, 
we see a little bit of the behind the scenes from God's motivation in sending his son in bringing new life and bringing regeneration along with the inner workings of the heart of every kind of person. So let's transition from 15 last week to now the, the Bible in miniature, as Martin Luther calls verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I don't know about you. Most of the time, I have to get away from my sort of oversaturation, if that's even possible with God's word, or perhaps the, the secularization of this Bible verse. You know what I'm saying? That so often we see this at sporting events and in, in contexts where, and it's not to say, of course, we want people to be looking at God's word in all, for all of life, right? But so often it seems to be a rallying cry to something else, some kind of vague notion of God's love without kind of working through the, in fact, the, the words that are in fact used here in relation to God's gift of incredible love. In the first place, we see very clearly for, this is the reason, the reason that he sent Jesus to be like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness so that all might believe in him and have eternal life. Why does God do that? His motivating factor is right here. For God so loved the world. This is the heart of God that makes a way for new birth. Looking at the, the state of sinful mankind and creating a means for them to come back to him as they were created to be in relationship with him. We see God's love not only in John 3, 16, but we see it as the motivating factor throughout the whole of Scripture, the motivating factor of his heart. I mean, when you get to 1 John, which we were, you know, not too long ago, you have John saying in chapter 4, I believe, that God is love. So motivating factor, as I keep saying, is probably a weakened version of what God is trying to tell us about himself and about his love. He is the true identity of love. It's very important. Somebody said once that God is love, but love is not necessarily God. Do you get that idea? God is love. If we want to understand what love is, we look to God. But if we want to understand what God is, should we look to love? Not necessarily, because well, what, what is love? Sounds like an old song, right? In the 90s. Sorry about that one. What is love? We have all sorts of definitions for what love is, right? And probably the most prevalent error in, a, in defining love today is that love is overwhelming acceptance regardless of where that person's life, situation, thoughts, good, bad, harm, help, all, all those things. Just, just a blanket of acceptance as people are. That is what love is today. And it's so close, isn't it? Because God does love the world, it says here. But we'll see in a second that there's more to it than that. We see in verse 16 our call for this morning that we do need to come to the light of life by the love of God in Christ. That love is the motivating thing. It is the thing that draws us to God. The most attractive factor of God is his love. Now, Again, this idea of, you know, the central characteristic of God, which is probably not even a good conversation to have because how can we understand that? But 
there's, there's a conversation in theological circles about holiness and love. You know, which one kind of sits at the center of the circle for God's character besides, you know, his wrath, his justice, his kindness, his compassion, all those kinds of things. Well, some say it's holiness. Some say it's love. Ultimately, there's no conflict between those two things. We're called to come to a God of holiness, of love, of righteousness, of goodness. But the thing that attracts us to God is most likely not going to be his holiness. Now, we should exalt the holiness of God, right? Absolutely. But do you notice whenever holiness is involved in a passage, what do people in all of creation do? Do they embrace the holiness of God? No, they hide them. I mean, think about the cherubim that, 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 that fly around the throne of God covering their faces. So that, and they just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, there's a separation because of holiness, but because God is not only holy, but he's also love, there is a drawing factor in Christ. And if we miss that in our gospel presentation, then we're missing an essential ingredient in the recipe of evangelism. So salvation is of the Lord. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2.5 says, he made us alive together with Christ. Why? Because of his great love. This was his plan. His plan was to express his love. That yes, that he might be glorified. Of course, that is the end result, is the glory of God. But the means that he chooses to glorify himself most is in expressing his love to lost sinners through Christ. When we read that God so loved this world for another scholastic debate in commentaries that you'll see, people are asking, is this saying God loves the world in this way or God loves the world with this much? Is it, is it a, a motive? Is it a means, a method? Or rather, is it an intensity? God so loved the world or this is how God loved the world. Well, it seems that the split is pretty even in understanding that, so we might as well say both, right? I mean, does this contradict his method or contradict the intensity of his love? Of course not. He so loved the world. There is nothing that he's holding back because what does he give? His son, his only son. And he gives it to the world, that is, all people for all times. Now, this is a great place if you want to believe in universalism and just say everybody's going to heaven. John 3.16 is a great place to cut the rest of the Bible out and just try to squeeze your man-made theology into this one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. We're going to get to the perishing thing in a second here, of course. But the temptation and probably the attraction of this verse is that in the beginning we just simply have this beautiful display of God's love. And so often we want to just cut ourselves off from the rest of that verse and certainly the rest of this passage. But he does, in fact, love the world. That is, all who he, whom he has created, all peoples for all of time. This love is different than his covenant love that he has for his church, mind you, okay? There's a difference here in regards to how he generally loves every single person in the world, but then how he specifically loves his church. Well, what does that come down to? Let's just use the illustration that the Bible gives us. What is the church called in relation to Christ? It's called the body of Christ. It's also called the bride. I love all of you. 
but I love Sarah more than all of you. Sarah, my wife, Sarah, right? I, I love my wife more than anyone else in my church, anyone else in my family. Why? Because she's my bride. She's the one set apart for me, my better half, right? My missing rib. And, and with Jesus and regarding God's love, what we're seeing with the church in relationship to the world is, yes, God looks at the world and yet he loves it. He's full of compassion and pity and desiring that none should perish, but all should come to repentance, Peter tells us. But that's different than the love that he has for his church, those who are the called out ones, those whom he has specifically said, yes, I have given my son so that whoever believes might be saved. But, but those who are, those who have been called out from that world have become a special people, set apart for God, holy to him. Does that mean we're better than them? No, not at all. But we've been brought near to God. And when we come to talking about things like election, which we inevitably will in the Gospel of John, Lord willing, We'll see that as God chooses to save, he doesn't choose to save based on anything he sees in any one of you or me or any of his people for all of time. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, I got to have Ross for sure. He's got to be on my team. This is not picking dodgeball teams during recess. God does not reveal to us why and, why and how he chooses to give new birth and new life to some, but then not to others. He doesn't tell us explicitly why, because we're not meant to know. That's one of those things where, again, where so often people are in this journey trying to understand Christianity so that they might believe, and you hit this wall where you say, hey, this isn't fair, this doesn't make sense with my reasoning, with my idea of righteousness, so I can't believe. Again, Augustine says, believe so that you might understand. Well, what is it that we understand on the other end of that when it comes to election? Again, not to do too much theology today, but what we come to believe as we put our faith in Christ is not, oh, now I understand who the elect are and who the elect aren't and why they're elect and why they're not elect. What we come to understand is God does what he pleases and he doesn't explain everything to us. And that's okay because I know him and I know the things that he doesn't reveal to me. He is not hiding something that is actually meant for my good. He's not hiding something that he's saying like, no, I, I, I've got to keep some of this stuff to myself. He's not harming us by not giving us the full picture. Because in all of this, we have Christ's Jesus, the Son of God, given for us. This is how he loved the world. This is how much he loved the world. And when it comes to telling people this message, there's a great discussion again. Man, sorry, this is really theological. It keeps coming up, but... There's, there's a lot of discussion revolving around, is it okay to tell a person who doesn't know Jesus that God loves them? What do you think? Should we tell them that? I heard a couple of yeses. Yeah. But, but if somebody's lost, that means the Bible says that they're, they're spiritually dead. It says they actually are an enemy of God. And the Bible is very clear about how God feels about his enemies. How can God be opposed to somebody whom he loves? Well, we often try to understand these things in our own terms, right? It's very hard for me to love somebody who's my enemy. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. Love your enemies. Why does Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Because that's what he does. And so when it comes to this, J.C. Ryle, a preacher in the 1800s, says we must not hesitate to tell any sinner that God loves him. 
It is not wrong for you to tell a person who is lost in their sins and opposed to God, an enemy of his, Jesus loves you. God loved you so much that he gave his son. We just got to get through the rest of the verse, don't we? His covenant love in Christ for his church is paired with, not in opposition to, his compassionate love for the lost. D.A. Carson says about God's love that his love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Well, that's depressing. Thanks a lot, Carson. What do we need that for? We need to be told how bad we are? Well, we, we have no idea, do we? What it truly means to be spiritually dead and our trespasses and sins completely opposed to God. And yet everything that you see in the Bible, if we can move on through this idea that we are lost sinners and, and like, you know, the, the depressing portion of the gospel that just is so not 2021 approved whatsoever because we need approval in everything that we believe about ourselves, every, everything that we do. We need to be approved and accepted, and that's the most important thing. Anything that goes against our accept, acceptance can't be true. But what we find in God's word is that his love is so great and that we, we find the, the depth of that great love, at least in part, in understanding how much we don't deserve it. It would be far less impressive for God to love us all if we were perfect. If we had something that he needed, it would make a whole lot of sense. Of course Jesus wants me on his team. I have the best bow ties. I'm the best at this. I'm really smart. I've accomplished so much. But rather, he loves the whole world that he gave his only son. And in the giving of his son, he shows us our deep need. Our deep need is for eternal life. And when John talks about eternal life, he doesn't talk about, hey, this means that when you die, you get to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. That's part of it. That's a huge part of it. But when John later, in John 17, when he shows us the prayer of Jesus in the garden, how does Jesus describe eternal life? Do you know? This is eternal life. That they, that is my disciples, might what? Do you know? Might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relational reality that we enter into at the point of our new birth not simply a matter of escaping the condemnation and eternal punishment we deserve, but it is first and foremost in its immediate effect, giving us new life and bringing us back to the one that we've been estranged from, that we've become enemies towards. This is how God loves the world. He gave his son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Look at our need for eternal life in verses 18 through 19. Sorry, I know I skipped 17. God didn't send his world, son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the mission of God, to save the world through Christ. Did Jesus come in and say, hey, guess what? I don't know if you know this, but you're all condemned. I mean, there, there was a warning of judgment in Jesus's ministry. But Jesus didn't come to only compound judgment and condemnation on those who were already condemned. The mission of God is not first and foremost, Jesus go down there and tell everybody how lost they really are, though they need to know that. The first and foremost motivating factor of God's mission for Christ is that they might know his love and have eternal life. 
Okay, now we can go to 18 to 19. Our need for eternal life. John writes in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you feel a sort of back and forth a little bit in that last section? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of the, of the only God. The only Son of God, sorry. See, condemnation is already there, and it all has to do with the response of a person to Jesus Christ. Do I respond with faith? Or do I reject the offer of salvation? Condemnation is already on all who, <laughs> the whole world, right? This is God's love for the whole world. Everyone who doesn't believe is condemned already because they have not believed. Our central problem with sin is not necessarily the fruit on the tree of our sinful lives, how we choose to lie or commit adultery or to steal or to hate people in our hearts, but rather at the root, all of sin is essentially a fruit of the true problem of our lack of faith in God. The thing that we are missing because we trust in ourselves. So from here, John now moves away from talking about the world and he delineates this into two groups. Those who respond by faith and those who do not respond by faith. Because Christ is the dividing factor for all of mankind for all of eternity. He writes next, judgment has, this is the judgment in verse 19. The light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Why in the world would we rather sit in darkness rather than light? What could we possibly have to gain from turning the lights off in our spiritual understanding? What would be the benefit to not seeing, to not beholding something? Well, what does darkness do? It hides things. Why do they love the darkness? Because their works were evil. And so this is our problem. I don't want to come to the light. Obviously, the light is talking about Christ here. I don't want to come to the light because it is either my sin or my shame that I am guarding as closely as I possibly can under the veil of darkness in my heart the things that I am keeping secret to others around me and that I'm in an attempt, much like Jonah running away from God, I'm attempting to hide these things from him as well. So I want to ask you this morning, what does the darkness have to offer you? What has it been offering you this past week? As you think about opportunities where you had, had to choose to either follow Christ in a decision that you made or a word that you said or an action that you made, and you were inevitably tempted to say, there, there's another way. I could probably lie about this thing and cover this thing up in darkness. You know, I had a Roto-Rooter come out to my house this week. So you know I had a really fun week, right? My front yard looks like a battlefield now. But that's okay. But one of the most interesting things that we did, not that there was a whole lot interesting going on, but one of the things that they can do is take a camera and go through the drain pipe underneath your house and show you everything that's going on in the pipe. I was so depressed. It just, it was like staring, I was staring at this little camera on the floor, and it was just this void of darkness. And then pretty soon he'd say, here's some terrible obstruction from the pipe deteriorating, or from, you know, 50 years of not cleaning this thing out. 
And it was just bad news after bad news. The darkness had kept all of that in such a way that I didn't have to know anything about it until my washing machine started leaking water into the living room on Monday afternoon, right? Until that darkness can only conceal so much and then finally it bursts forth, the problem becomes evident and you have to do something about it. And then your yard gets torn up because you have to put a new pipe in. I hope the spiritual analogy makes sense to you. In the darkness, we hide either our sin, the thing that we love to do, love to be a part of, or the shame, the, the, the problems that we have with our, our self-perception or, or the issues that we haven't dealt with, whatever that might be. We hide all of those things and pretend like they're not, they don't exist at all, but inevitably, our sin will find us out. Additionally, our problem in this passage may just have to do with this issue of faith. Because God isn't calling us to perform something in order to be saved, in order to be found in Christ. He's calling us to simply put our faith in him. And I imagine that for many of you, your personality is such that, or your understanding of the world is, is very much, I don't want to say wrapped up in, but, but leans so much towards, I know that I have comfort, security, peace, uh, goodness, profit, Whatever, I, the, whatever that thing is that I want, that my heart wants so desperately, I know that I have those things because I've worked very hard for it. I've expended all of my energy, and so I've earned that thing that I have. This is where Nicodemus would have been. He was the teacher of Israel. He had accomplished whatever you could accomplish in regards to religion and faith and, and relating to God. He would not have seen his, himself as somebody who needed to repent of anything because he would have already performed all the sacrifices necessary. He would have already done all the good deeds that he possibly could think of. And so when Jesus comes and says, you need to start over, you need to erase the page entirely and be born again, he's telling him he has to leave all those things behind. So either in the light, we're either going to have to deal today with the fact that there is sin and shame that we're hiding in the darkness, or the fact that we are also hiding uh, this, some measure at the very least of knowing, I did a good job today because what? Our own efforts, whatever it might be. What are we building what is our means that we are building our hope for eternal life on? Is it simply faith in Christ or is it something else? The fact is that faith in Christ is not about spiritual knowledge or accomplishment. It is the defining line. It's not just in the end, but it is now, just like eternal life happens now and today. So believer, brother, sister in Christ, does your faith come as a result of your new birth, having looked to Christ as the serpent lifted up in the wilderness? Or is it what you're looking to right now is the work of your own accomplishments? Well, of course God wants me on, my, on his team because I've done X, Y, and Z. Do these uncertainties call your faith into question? Your whole relationship to God entirely. Let's look at the last section here, verses 20 through 21. Barnabas Piper, who's the son of John Piper, if you're familiar, said in his book, great book, um, titled Help My Unbelief, really, really great book. But in it, he says, to live by faith is to rest in the object of our faith, the God of the Bible, and to come to terms with all of our I don't knows, all the questions that we ask, all of our uncertainties. 
John 3, 20 through 21 says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The solution to the darkness is to, in fact, come to the light, to embrace that very thing that we, in our sinful flesh, are trying to run away from day by day to come into that light and reveal not our own work, but the work of God, to reveal that our hope, our faith is not in even in what we've done in, in regards to the, the right thing and in our faith itself. Our faith cannot just be, you know, I believe because I believe. You know, my belief gives me reason to think that I actually believe, and so my faith is strong. That's ridiculous, isn't it? I hope it sounded as ridiculous as I wanted it to. Our faith is meant to be in the person of God. The object of our faith is Christ himself. And so in granting us the new birth, he has created faith in us as the right response to the call of the gospel. Coming to the light then becomes an act of worship because it reveals the wonderful work of his grace in our lives. We've seen Christ be called the light before. We saw this in uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, that light entered the world. Let's look at that briefly. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So you can't come into contact with Jesus without having light expose your darkness. That light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet that world, that world that God loved so much, did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see John's theology is so, in regards to salvation, is so clearly resting on the work of God and not ourselves. Christ has granted us the new birth, and because of that, we have faith. We don't have to muster up and create the faith to respond to the new birth that we have. We just simply need to breathe. We just simply need to walk out this new life that we have. So the one who does what is true comes to the light and reveals the work of God, not the work of his own. Works done in God, longing to show what he's done as an act of worship to say, I'm running into marvelous light because I've found that in that light there is love and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I was condemned before, but now I am made new. I'm, I'm embracing the light because I have nothing left to hide. You know, um, there's so many smart devices in your houses now. E even if you say, like, well, no, I don't, have, I don't have an Amazon Echo or Google Home or anything. Yeah, but you probably have a smartphone, right? Not, not all of us do. I <laughs> Some shaking heads. So some, some, of us are, some of us are safe, but generally we're all just doomed to being controlled by Amazon, Apple, Disney, or whoever we love the most, right? And so I get that. And I was talking about this the other day. Um, I get that, you know, having an, a device in your home that is always listening to see, like, are you going to tell me to do something? Do you want to know what time it is? Do you want to know the weather? Do you want to play a song? Do you want, you know, all those kind of things. It's constantly listening for us to say that. So, of course, our concern is, what else is it hearing, right? Does Amazon know what's on my grocery list or what I'm talking to my wife about or blah, 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 all these things that we'd be concerned about. In one sense, as believers, we've run out of the darkness and said there's nothing that we have left to hide. 
This is not an endorsement for any smart home devices. But in part, it should at least be a picture for us where we say, okay, so Amazon might find out what I'm all about. That's exactly what I want everyone to do when they come into contact with me. I want to be one who, like that light of Christ that, that comes into the world and shines in the darkness everywhere it goes, I want to be one who reflects that. Not because I want to go around condemning people, right? But that light contains the love of God. And unless the light shines, the love isn't going to be communicated. So this, we cannot just leave it at the first part of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Yay, there's more. Faith has to be the response. We have to come to the light. And we need to, as believers, we need to be compelled to reflect the light of his love to others around us. C.S. Lewis says, because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. Did you catch that? Some of these guys, Augustine and C.S. Lewis, come on, guys. Sometimes they talk in circles, it sounds like. But he says this, because we love something else, that is God. Because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. Because you might think, well, yeah, somebody who lives in the world is, of course, going to care only about the world and not care at all about what God has. So if the world was picking between a Christian and a non-Christian to love and serve them and make things better, wouldn't they pick somebody who is wholly devoted to the world and not to some God, some creator up in heaven? Well, no. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that we actually are to be salt and light in this world. Uh, church, I don't want to puff you up, so don't take this the wrong way, but you're supposed to be the best part of what this world has to offer because this world needs so much. It needs that light to shine. So as we're talking this year about testifying to Christ, let us testify to his great love to others, that they might see that. And yeah, of course, beyond that, it's going to be like, okay, but I don't understand, like, why, do some, why are some born again and some are not? And why do I have to give up this thing? Why does my darkness have to be revealed? Why do I need to tear up my whole life and make everything his? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It wasn't cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there we go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the guy who basically was the first one to talk about cheap grace, right? He was there. He was one of the first. That, that grace is not, the, the, the good thing that God gives us that we don't deserve was not just something he had hanging on a shelf. He didn't just say, hey, let me whip something up here for you and I'll send it down to earth. He sent his only son and so that means that this supreme display of love must be met and can only truly be met if light is shining in the heart of a person who will believe and be born again. It can only truly be met by the total unconditional love of that person. Sure, do we struggle through that love? Yeah, of course we do. But what God is creating in us is a love that reflects back up to him. He's creating the character of Christ in us making us like the one who was sent to pay for our sins and make us new. So we have to testify to our deep need being satisfied in him, that, that the thing we needed the most, God has met by the most incredible means and the only means possible. We have to call people to the light as ones who also once were in darkness, but now walk by the light of faith in Christ. The object of our faith, not by faith itself, not to just say, I have great faith, I have such great faith, 
but I have a great Savior in whom I put all of my trust. Yes, love exposes our sin and shame before him, but that ultimately ends up being a good thing because God does not intend, he does not delight in judgment and destruction. He wants us to repent. Again, I think I said this last week, the Puritans called his condemnation and his wrath his strange work. It was not his, it's not the, the thing closest to his heart. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself as one who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. And that is what we testify to. His love also calls us to rest in his character and faithfulness more than our own understanding. We're, we're not coming back into the shallow end after this passage. John's going to take us deeper and deeper into the things of theology, and, and it's not going to be about how much we understand it that increases our faith, but as we place our faith in him, that understanding will grow and produce more worship. That's what we want out of understanding him better. So how do we respond? You know, something I used to do in youth group that I really have been meaning to bring to the pulpit more often is just a simple application structure. What does this passage want you to know? What does it want you to be? And what does it want you to do? So hopefully this is helpful to you. First of all, it wants you to know that you're loved. Wow. Take a load off, okay? Rest in that. Know that you are loved. And if you are in Christ, you are more than loved. You are accepted. You are brought close. You are redeemed. You are made new. You are given new birth in him. So you need to know that you are loved. Know that the light of Christ shines for your good and for his glory. Don't hide away from the light that reveals your darkness. I had to do something about the drain pipe in my front yard. Otherwise, bad things were going to happen, worse than what was already going on. So there has to be a huge pile of dirt in my flower bed now because it's under construction. But one day, hopefully maybe tomorrow or the next day, be a beautiful flower bed there again. You might not even see the, the, the previous nature of what had to happen to make it what it was. Again, do you see the spiritual analogy? The light of Christ shines for your good, for his glory, to make you new, to renew you and give you life. Know those things. Now be, be aware of this need daily. Be alert to hear from him in his word and prayer. Don't come to this as just say like, okay, well, my duty is just to intellectually absorb all this information, but receive it as God's word to you, his love for you and for your good and for his glory. Know that and, and I'm sorry, rather be aware of this need that you have daily and be alert to hear from him. Lastly, what should you do? You have to repent of your darkness. I already did that. I've been born again. I know I have faith. Okay, great. Keep repenting of your darkness because the darkness is still knocking on your door. It still wants to offer you a way of hiding your sin or hiding your shame or giving you a platform to present yourself where, where you, can, you can lie to yourself and act like God doesn't know and, and just revel in your own accomplishments and your own deeds. Repent of that. Repent of the darkness and repent of your accomplishments. I'm going to give you one specific thing to do this week, and that is this. I want you to take five minutes to reread this passage, and it doesn't even take five minutes. It takes like a minute and a half. I want to call you to reread this passage, and in that five minutes, just five minutes, ponder his great love that he has for you, and then tell somebody that God loves them. Believer or non-believer, wherever you find yourself, read this passage again. 
Think on the great love that God has for you and what that means. And then when you're done, send a text message, make a phone call, go next door, tell somebody else about the great love of God. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Father, that we are in Christ. If we have truly believed, we've been born again to newness of life in you, not to our own, by our own methods, not for our own glory, not according to our accomplishments or even according to some great quality of faith that we have. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. It's a result of our new birth in you. So Lord, help us to walk by faith. Help us to linger in in pondering and thinking about your great love. Make us powerful testifiers to who Christ is. Not in the sense that we wow people by our words or by our deeds or by some hidden truth that they couldn't have known unless we revealed it, but rather let us be those who simply point to Jesus, just as we'll learn from John the Baptist next week. He must increase and I must decrease. It is for my good that I decrease. It is for my good that my darkness be dealt with and be given new light and life according to your love. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.